get in trouble for not properly introducing the show, so allow me to introduce myself. I am Kimberly, first of her name, granddaughter of Enos, granddaughter of Andrew, grandniece of Cyrene, she who would not be murdered, and you're listening to An Hour of Your Life. And my name is Steve. (laughs) Okay. So, if you can't guess what that was all about, Kim has discovered genealogy. Oh, so much fun. And if I thought I was married to a nerd, now I'm married to a bigger nerd. I We've been up obscenely late all week um, because I just can't stop tracing my roots and, and finding all kinds of fun stories along the way. For example... On, uh, so my, my family on either side of my family, on my mom's side and my dad's side, there was one of my great grandfathers who each had 27 children. So basically my family is pretty much like solely responsible for populating the Midwest. You're welcome. All right. And, and one of my great uncles, great uncle David, uh, he chased his wife, Cyrene around with an ax. But he didn't kill her, I don't think. She kept his name until the very end. Like, she died with his name. She didn't divorce him or anything, which if you chased me around with an axe, I'd probably not keep you around. No I, want, I wonder if he'd been drinking. Yeah, he just looks, there's pictures of him, and he in all of his pictures, he just looks mean. So I don't know if, I think it was just him. His dad was called, uh, what did they say that he was called? Like, Gimpy, Gimpy Charlie or something like that? No, it was I don't like know. Stumpy Charlie or some kind of a... So he was probably made fun of a lot when he was a kid. Oh, are we ready to get into this week's episode? Yeah, I guess. If you don't want to talk about my genealogy, it's fine. It's fine with me. So in this I've episode... I've to it. I know you have. In this episode, we're going to talk about a very, very... late. ...controversial figure in American history. Some look at him as a fierce warrior and a brave and brilliant tactician. Others view him as a war criminal that committed many atrocities as a soldier and without a doubt, we have the advantage of time and history on our side. But just like the current war in Ukraine right now, there are a lot of quote-unquote experts and armchair generals that have shared their opinions. And you're just going to have to listen to the story and make up your own mind. I've made up my mind, and I'm, for Steve's sake, going to try to stay ob- objective in my comments, but I can't make any promises. We are supposed to be neutral and just report the facts. Listen. Okay. You know how this works. I know. <laughs> okay. So today's episode is about George Armstrong Custer. One thing that can't be disputed is that he was a very colorful character and has a very interesting story to say the least. He was a Civil War hero that had a major role in the uh, preservation of the Union at Gettysburg. He was brave. He was courageous. He led his troopers from the front, like a good leader is supposed to do. During the Indian Wars on the Great Plains, how he was viewed all depended on which side you were on, but we'll get into that into some pretty graphic and gruesome detail. Mm. But before we get started, we make it a, we need to make a disclaimer. We're at times going to refer to Native Americans or indigenous peoples as Indians. Now, we do this to keep the story in the context of the period and to keep the narrative as close to the sources and original quotes of the people at the time. So we don't mean any offense and hope to tell this story as fairly and accurately as possible without bias to either side. So with that, 
we present George Armstrong Custer. Now, some people would say brave and courageous. Others might say foolhardy and reckless. But anyway, Custer's paternal ancestors, Paulus and Gertrude Custer, came to, which I like much better than Custer, (laughs) came to the North American English colonies around 1693 from the Rhineland in Germany. Wait, wait, who's that guy that... uh that does the coupons. Oh, uh, Ron White. Ron White, yeah. yeah. Cooster. The, yeah, the coupons. They came from the Rhineland area in Germany, um, which, is that where my people are from? Yes. Yeah, my people are from here too. Uh, they were probably among thousands of Palatines whose passage was arranged by the English government to gain settlers in New York and Pennsylvania. Now, according to family letters, Custer was named after George Armstrong, who was a minister, and his devout mother's hope that her son might join the clergy. That didn't happen. Custer was born in New Rumley, Ohio. O-H. I-O. To Emmanuel Henry Custer, um, a farmer and a blacksmith, and Marie Ward Kirkpatrick, who was of English and Scots-Irish descent. He had four siblings, Thomas, Margaret, Nevin, and Boston, which is the coolest name for a kid I can... I can think of. That's a really cool name. Custer also had three older half-siblings from his father's first marriage. Now, he and his brothers were pretty skilled at practical jokes, which they liked to pull on their family members. His dad, Emmanuel, was an outspoken Jacksonian Democrat who taught his children politics and toughness at an early age. In a February 3rd, 1887 letter to his son's widow, Libby, Emmanuel related an incident from when... Okay, spoiler alert. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) He related an incident from when George Custer, also known as Audie, was about four years old. He had to have a tooth drawn, and he was very much afraid of blood. When When I took him to the doctor to have the tooth pulled, it was in the night, and I told him if it bled well, it would get well right away, and he must be a good soldier. When we got to the doctor, he took a seat, and the pulling began. The forceps slipped off, and he had to make a second trial. He pulled it out, and Audie never even scrunched. Going home, I led him by the arm. He jumped and skipped and said, Father, you and me can whip all the wigs in Michigan. I thought that was saying a good deal, but I did not contradict him. Now, for Custer to go to school, he lived with his older half-sister and her husband in Monroe, Michigan. But before entering the United States Military Academy, Custer attended the McNeely Normal School later known as Hopedale Normal School in Hopedale, Ohio. Now, a normal school, the primary function of a, of a normal school is to train teachers for elementary school. So that's what Custer was kind of gearing up to do right here. While attending Hopedale, Custer and his classmate, William Enos Emery, they were known to have carried coal to help pay for their room and board. So he worked hard, and you know he, he, he wasn't... Slacking with all this. No, he, he was he, he was he yeah. was a hard worker. Yeah. After graduating from McNeely Normal School in 1856, Custer taught school in Cadiz, Ohio. His first sweetheart was Mary Jane Holland. Ah, uh, can you imagine having Custer for a teacher? Like yeah. as you as you can as you'll learn throughout the episode, he was very um, he w- he was a very big figure, like a very flamboyant and larger than life. I bet he would have been a fun teacher. Yeah. Custer entered the United States Military Academy at West Point as a cadet on July 1st, 1857, as a member of the class of 1862. 
There were 79 cadets in his class beginning their five-year journey to become officers, army officers. Out of necessity, due to the outbreak of the American Civil War in 1861, this shortened the cadets' education to four years, and Custer, his class graduated on June 24, 1861. He was 34th in a class of 34 graduates. Now, we said there were more, 23 classmates, had dropped out for academic reasons. West Point is a very academically challenging school. While 22 of his classmates had already resigned to join the Confederacy. So. Somebody's got to be last. Someone's got to be last. So right now, if you're last. Okay. Today, if you're called the GOAT, that's a good thing. The greatest the, of all time. Yeah. But I guess at West Point, being the GOAT is a term of endearment given to the cadet graduating at the bottom of their class. So it's actually like the woat, but not. Yeah, yeah. But as I understand, the whole class contributes a dollar and the goat gets the pot. Now, I have even heard tell that if your GPA is already low, some cadets will do their best to get the lowest grade possible, but still good enough to pass so they can collect the pot of money. Shoot, I did that all through college and I didn't even get anything for it except a degree. Yeah, your, <laughs> your GPA was nowhere near that low. I did the bare minimum that I that I had to do to yeah, pass. You ended up with pretty good grades, though. Okay. Because my bare minimum is excellent. I don't know, and my source can't confirm um, if this was a tradition in Custer's Day, the the collecting the money, though. Mm. But that's but, the tradition now. Is that the tradition now? That's the tradition we, now. We have a close source that graduated from West Point. Yeah. So. so throughout his entire life, Custer pushed the boundaries and the rules in his four years at West Point he earned a record total of 726 demerits, one of the worst conduct records in the history of the academy. And what? that's saying something because Poe went to West Point too, didn't he? And yes. he like almost he got kicked out almost for getting so many demerits. Yeah. Well, at West Point, Custer was court-martialed for neglect of duty for failing to break up a fight between two cadets while he was officer of the guard. But now with that, he did receive light punishment. The local minister remembered Custer as, quote, the instigator of devilish plots, both during the service and in Sunday school. On the surface, he appeared attentive and respectful, but underneath, the mind contrived with disruptive ideas. A fellow cadet recalled Custer as declaring there were only two places in a class, the head and the foot, and since he had no desire to be the head, he aspired to be the foot. <laughs> a roommate commented, it was all right with George Custer, whether he knew his lesson or not. He simply didn't allow it to trouble him. Uh, during normal... Like Akuna Matata. <laughs> yeah, basically. During normal times, Custer's low class rank would result in him being posted to a not-so-desirable duty station, the first step in a dead-end career. But to Custer's good fortune, he graduated as the Civil War broke out. Therefore, the Union Army had a sudden need for lots of junior officers... And so they had the early graduation, and like his peers, Custer was commissioned as a second lieutenant and was assigned to the 2nd U.S. Cavalry Regiment, tasked with drilling volunteers in Washington, D.C. And because he earned his fame and reputation during the Civil War, we want to cover his exploits so you can get a clear picture of him as a soldier. Yeah, like we said, we want to give both sides of this. Right. And so we want to cover in detail here what he did during the war. Yeah, because he's famous more for his exploits out west, but, the, I mean, he did a lot during the Civil War yeah, as well. You, yeah, if you've had to study military history, he is a legendary cavalry leader. Mm. Okay, so on July 21st, 1861, 
He was with his regiment at the first Battle of Bull Run during the Manassas Campaign, where the Army Commander Winfield Scott detailed, detailed him to carry messages to General Irvin McDowell. After the battle, he continued participating in the defense of Washington, D.C. until October, when he became ill. Now, I couldn't find what made him sick, um, but it could have been any number of things common to soldiers in that day, like typhoid, dysentery, or something else. He got a paper cut and it got infected. And it, it could like, have, honestly, that's, yeah, it could you could die from stuff like that back yeah. then. Approximately 666,000 soldiers died from in- infectious disease during the Civil War. I th- yeah, it was it was it bad. Was, yeah. yeah, hygiene and stuff like that well, just wasn't, you know, the I best. I mean, when you've got a bone saw out in the field, it's not really, like, yeah. there's not a lot you can do. He stayed absent from his unit from this illness uh, until February 1862, but in March he participated with the 2nd Cavalry in the Peninsula Campaign in Virginia until April 4th. On April 5th, Custer served in the 5th Cavalry Regiment and participated in the Siege of Yorktown from April 5th to May 4th, and he was aide to Major General George B. McClellan. Can I interrupt for just a second? I have yep. a, a military question here. Is that typical that like you would just bounce from regiment to regiment during a war like that? Yeah, it, 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 back then it was. I mean, okay. a lot of, yeah. For the officers, they would, would they would have been moved around. Gotcha. Yeah. McClellan was the commander of the Army of the Potomac during the Peninsula Campaign. On May 24, 1862, during the pursuit of Confederate General Joseph E. Johnston up the peninsula, when General McClellan and his staff were reconnoitering a potential crossing point on the Chickahominy River, they stopped and Custer overheard General uh, Barnard mutter, I wish I knew how deep it was. Custer, now this is typical Custer. Yeah, this is the Custerish thing to ever Custer. Custer dashed forward on his horse out to the middle of the river, turned to the astonished officers, and shouted triumphantly, McClellan! That's how deep it is, General. His flair was beginning to be noticed. How could you not? Yeah. His reward was to be allowed to lead an attack with four companies of the 4th Mich- Michigan Infantry across the Chickahominy River above Newbridge. The attack was successful, resulting in the capture of 50 Confederate soldiers and the seizing of the first Confederate battle flag of the war. McClellan was impressed and called the ride to the middle of the river a very gallant affair and congratulated Custer personally. Like, he literally just rode a horse into the middle of a river and everybody thinks it's a big deal. In his duties as aide-de-camp to McClellan, Apparently it was. (laughs) He began his lifelong pursuit of publicity of which he used to his advantage in self-promotion. Now, just imagine if you would have had Twitter or another social media platform. I cannot imagine TikTok in the hands of George Custer. He would have been, it would have been, he would have, he was like the world's first influencer. But I think um, maybe that shows his instinct for publicity and how it can definitely be a powerful tool to have in your kit bag because he, by all accounts, he should have been a sucky soldier based on his performance at West Point, and yet here we are hundreds of years later making a show about him. Yeah. He was promoted to the rank of captain on June 5th, 1862, and on July 17th, he was demoted to the rank of first lieutenant, and because he's Custer, who knows what he did. Could be any number of things to get demoted. The war moved on, and he participated in the Maryland campaign in September to October, 
the Battle of South Mountain on September 14th, and the Battle of Antietam on September 17th, and then the March to Warrington, Virginia in October. Now, we're bringing up all these battles, so it's clear that he was not just a staff officer that just sat the war in the rear. He was out there and building his reputation and leading his soldiers. On June 9th, 1863, he became aide to Brevet Lieutenant Colonel Alfred Pleasanton. Now, Brevet means temporary promotion. Ah, okay. okay. So, Brevet, or Pleasanton was commanding the Cavalry Corps Army of the Potomac. They had such colorful names back then. Recalling his service under Pleasanton, he was quoted as saying that, I do not believe a father could love his son more than General Pleasanton loves me. <laughs> Ego. Pleasanton's first assignment was to locate the army of Robert E. Lee moving north through the Shenandoah Valley in the beginning of what led to the Gettysburg Campaign. Pleasanton was promoted on June 22, 1863 to Major General of United States Volunteers. On June 29th, after consulting with the new commander of the Army of the Potomac, George Meade, Pleasanton began replacing political generals with commanders who were prepared to fight and to personally lead mounted attacks. So back in that time, it was common practice for friends to be given high ranks. And most likely, these friends had no military experience. And that practice did. It cost many lives. And this this practice was well documented. Mm -hmm. Pleasanton found just the kind of aggressive fighters he wanted in three of his aides. Wesley Merritt, uh, Elon J. Farnsworth, both of whom had command experience, and Custer. Now, back in the Civil War, was being a general as political as it is now? You know, I'm I'm sure it was. I you mean, they so? were promoting people because they were Their friends. friendships, yeah. 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 They all received immediate promotions, Custer to Brigadier General of Volunteers, commanding the Michigan Cavalry Brigade, the Wolverines, of course. Despite having no direct... Oh, I.O. Despite having no direct command experience, he became one of the youngest generals in the Union Army at age 23. He immediately turned his brigade into his own to reflect his aggressive character. With strong leadership, soldiers and units will take on the personality of their commander. So now we have an entire unit of Custers. And as a general officer, he had great latitude in choosing his uniform. Now, those uniform was often criticized as gaudy. To Custer, it wasn't about his personal vanity. Historian Tom Carhart observed that, quote, a showy uniform for Custer was one of command presence on the battlefield. He wanted to be readily distinguishable at first glance from all other soldiers. He intended to lead from the front, and to him, it was a crucial issue of unit morale that his men be able to look up in the middle of a charge or at any other time on the battlefield and instantly see him leading the way into danger, which is actually some t like well, the opposite of what you normally hear because you don't always want your leader to stand out, right? Because then they become a, a huge target. Well, I mean, leaders are expected to be there out front leading their soldiers. But the cavalry officer, and it's true to this day, they have, you, you have to, with the jobs, the missions they get, you have to have someone with a lot of flair, with a lot of personality, and most cavalry officers take, they, they, it's just ingrained in them. That's what they do. So to me, this, and, and served in cavalry units, I don't, you know, this isn't surprising to me. This is just what a cavalry officer of Custer in that time would have been doing. Is that, is, is that still the case now? 
Yeah, yeah. Your that, senior officers, when you were in the cavalry, were they very colorful characters? They, they were absolutely some of the most colorful characters, and just you, you have to have that attitude because usually you're operating yeah. out front on your own, and it's you need someone that's very aggressive and that can do that, and just you have to be able to inspire and you have to be able to lead soldiers. And to me, this is what Custer was doing. Things progressed, and at Gettysburg, you could argue that Custer made one of his greatest contributions and really earned the fame that he was given. You could even argue that Custer's actions immediately prior to and during the Battle of Gettysburg allowed the Union to defeat the Confederate Army at Gettysburg, which became Gettysburg was the high-water mark of the rebels. Mm. And Gettysburg was the turning point for the Confederate Army, and the Civil War kind of went downhill from there for generally in the Confederate Army. Now, certainly there were a lot of other things that contributed to this with a lot of everything else going on, but Custer played a major part in allowing all this to happen. We could probably do, I mean, if this was a military podcast, you could easily devote several episodes just to Gettysburg oh, and absolutely. the strategy and the, you know, all absolutely. of the, the things yeah. leading up to the battle. Yeah. So here's the story of Custer and Gettysburg. On June 30th, 1863, just days before the Battle of Gettysburg actually began, Custer and the 1st and 7th Michigan Cavalry had just passed through Hanover, Pennsylvania, while the 5th and 6th Michigan Cavalry followed about seven miles behind. Hearing gunfire, he turned and started to the sound of the guns, like a good cavalry officer should have done right then. Because, well, okay. So, <laughs> a courier reported that a U.S. brigade commanded by Farnsworth had been attacked by rebel, rebel cavalry from the side streets in the town. Reassembling his command, he received orders from Kilpatrick to engage the enemy northeast of town near the railway station. Custer deployed his troops and began to advance. Now, let me explain a little right here. One of the main jobs of the cavalry is to operate away from the main force to locate the enemy before it gets to the main force so that the main force isn't surprised. Another mission to cav is to protect the flanks of the main unit. And of course, everybody is familiar with the cavalry charge. So the cavalry, they have to be... They have the scouts. That's exactly what they are. They're reconnaissance. They're scouts. So they're out operating without the protection of everyone else. So they have to have that flair, for lack of a better word. Okay, You know, when I was in the cavalry, we, we had a saying, it won't make sense, but to some people it will, but the saying was, never go any place for the first time. And that's a cavalry's mission. That's why your scouts are there. That's why the scouts are there, so the main force doesn't go someplace for the first time. Yep. So that's that's what that means. Now, we went through all that to say that as a good cavalry officer, Custer was out doing exactly what he was supposed to be doing. Now, after a brief firefight, the rebels withdrew to the northeast. To Custer, this seemed a little odd since he thought that Lee and his army were somewhere to the west. Now, while it didn't seem like much at the time, this skirmish further delayed Stuart from joining Lee in the main body of the Confederate Army. And the next morning, on July 1st, they passed through Abbottstown, Pennsylvania, still searching for Stuart's cavalry. Late in the morning, they heard sounds of gunfire from the direction of Gettysburg. At Heidlersburg, Pennsylvania, that night, they learned that General John Buford's cavalry had found Lee's army at Gettysburg. And the next morning, July 2nd, orders came to hurry north to disrupt General Richard S. Ewell's communications and relieve the pressure on the Union forces. 
By mid-afternoon, as they approached Hunterstown, Pennsylvania, they encountered Stewart's cavalry. Custer rode alone ahead to investigate and found that Stewart was unaware of the arrival of his troops. So now we've got the element of surprise on our side. Returning to his troopers, he carefully positioned them along both sides of the road where they would be hidden from the rebels. Farther along the road, behind a low rise, he positioned the 1st and 5th Michigan Cavalry and his artillery. To bait his trap, he gathered A Troop, 6th Michigan Cavalry, and called out, Come on, boys, I'll lead you this time! And he galloped directly at the unsuspecting rebels. Now, as he had expected, more than 200 horsemen came racing down the country road after Custer and his men. He lost half of his men in the deadly rebel fire, and his horse went down, leaving him on foot. He was rescued by Private Norval Francis Churchill. I wonder if he's distant relation to that, Churchill. I don't know. Of the 1st Michigan Cavalry, who galloped up, shot Custer's nearest assailant, and pulled Custer up behind him onto his horse. Custer and his remaining men reached... Custer and his remaining men reached safety while the pursuing rebels were cut down by slashing rifle flyer, then canister from six cannons. The rebels broke off their attack and both sides withdrew. After spending most of the night on his horse, Custer's brigade arrived at Two Taverns, Pennsylvania, roughly five miles southeast of Gettysburg around 3 a.m. on July 3rd. There he was joined by Farnsworth's brigade. I wonder how many taverns they had in that town. I don't know. Probably two. By daybreak, they received orders to protect Meade's flanks. He was about to experience perhaps his finest hours during the Civil War. Lee's battle plan, shared with less than a handful of subordinates, was to defeat Meade through a combined assault by all of his army. General James Longstreet would attack Cemetery Hill from the west, Stuart would attack Culp's Hill from the southeast, and Ewell would attack Culp's Hill from the north. Once the Union forces holding Culp's Hill had collapsed, the rebels would roll up the remaining of the Union defenses on Cemetery Ridge. To accomplish accomplish this, he sent Stuart with 6,000 cavalrymen and mounted infantrymen on a long flanking maneuver. By mid-morning on July 3rd, Custer arrived at the intersection of Old Dutch Road and Hanover Road, two miles east of Gettysburg. He was later joined by Brigadier General David McCurdy Gregg, who had um, him deploy his men at the northeast corner. Custer then sent out scouts to investigate nearby wooded areas. Meanwhile, Gregg had positioned Colonel John um, Bailey McIntosh's brigade near the intersection and sent the rest of his command to picket duty two miles to the southwest. What's that? Picket duty, I mean, to me, it's kind of what it sounds, that, you know, a picket, a sentry, they were just out like looking. a fence, like a picket fence? Yeah, they were just out looking oh, okay. for what, what was going on. Gotcha. After additional deployments of 2,400 cavalry under McIntosh and 1,200 under Custer, they they remained there with artillery units, which had a total of 10 three-inch guns. Now, I want to point out here that the population of Gettysburg at that time was 2,400. Yeah. So there were more soldiers... Than population. Oh, yeah. By far. By over 1,200. Well, they weren't in town. I mean, you know, the population of Gettysburg wasn't entirely in town either. That's counting the people in the outskirts. Yeah, it's just just a small little town. Yeah. So, I mean, this is significant to the people there. Now, about noon, Custer's men heard cannon fire. Stewart signaled to Lee that he was in position and had not been detected. 
About the same time, Gregg received a message warning that a large body of rebel cavalry had moved out onto the York Pike and might be trying to get around the Union right. A second message from Pleasanton ordered Gregg to send Custer to cover the Union far left. Since Gregg had already sent most of his force off to other duties, it was clear to both Gregg and Custer that Custer must remain. They had about 2,700 men facing 6,000 Confederates. Soon afterwards, fighting broke out between the skirmish lines. Stewart ordered an attack by his mounted infantry under General Albert G. Jenkins, but the Union line held with men from the 1st Michigan Cavalry, the 1st New Jersey Cavalry, and the 3rd Pennsylvania Cavalry. Stewart ordered Jackson's four-gun battery into action. Custer ordered Pennington to answer. After a brief exchange in which two of Jackson's guns were destroyed, there was a lull. About one o'clock, the massive Confederate artillery barrage in support of the upcoming assault on Cemetery Ridge began. Jenkins' men renewed the attack but soon ran out of ammunition and fell back. Resupplied, they again pressed the attack. Outnumbered, the Union cavalry fell back, firing as they went. Custer sent most, most of his 5th Michigan cavalry ahead on foot, forcing Jenkins' men to fall back. Jenkins' men were reinforced by about 150 sharpshooters from General Fitzhugh Lee's brigade, and shortly after Stuart ordered a mounted charge by the 9th Virginia Cavalry and the 13th Virginia Cavalry, and now it was Custer's men who were running out of ammunition. So it, there's a lot of back and forth and back and forth. Advance, retreat, advance, retreat. The 5th Michigan was forced back, and the battle was reduced to vicious hand-to-hand combat. Seeing this, Custer mounted a counterattack, riding ahead of the fewer than 400 new troopers of the 7th Michigan Cavalry, shouting, Come on, you Wolverines! As he swept forward, he formed a line of squadrons five ranks deep, five rows of 80 horsemen side by side, chasing the retreating rebels until the charge was stopped by a wood rail fence. The horses and men became jammed into a solid mass and were soon attacked on their left flank, by the dismounted 9th and 13th Virginia Cavalry, and on the right flank, by the mounted 1st Virginia Cavalry. Custer extricated his men and raced south to the protection of Pennington's artillery near Hanover Road. The pursuing Confederates were cut down by the canister fire. Then driving back by the remounted 5th Michigan Cavalry, both forces withdrew to a safe distance to regroup. There was a lot going on. It It was bloody and it was vicious. It was then about 3 o'clock the artillery barrage to the west had suddenly stopped. Union soldiers were surprised to see Stuart's entire force about a half mile away coming toward them, not in a line of battle, but formed in close column of squadrons, a grander spectacle than their advance has rarely been beheld. Quote. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Stuart recognized that he had little time to reach and attack the Union rear along Cemetery Ridge he realized that he had to make one last effort to break through the Union cavalry. He passed by McIntosh's cavalry, the 1st New Jersey, 3rd Pennsylvania, and Company A of Purnell's Legion, which had been posted about halfway down the field, with relative ease. And as Stewart approached, the Union troops were ordered back into the woods without slowing down Stewart's column, advancing as if in review with sabers drawn and glistening like silver in the bright sunlight. Stewart's last obstacle was Custer and his 400 veteran troopers of the 1st Michigan Cavalry directly in the Confederate Cavalry's path. Outnumbered but undaunted, Custer rode to the head of the regiment, drew his saber, threw off his hat so they could see his long yellow hair, 
and shouted again, Come on, you wolverines! Custer formed his men into line of battle and charged. So sudden was the collision that many of the horses turned over end over end and crushed their riders beneath them, says one account. As the Confederate advance stopped, their right flank was struck by troopers of the 5th, 6th, and 7th Michigan. McIntosh was able to gather some of his men from the 1st New Jersey and 3rd Pennsylvania and charge the rebel left flank. Seeing that the situation was becoming critical, I... Captain Miller turned to Lieutenant Brooke Rawl and said, I have been ordered to hold this position, but if you will back me up in case I am court-martialed for disobedience, I will order a charge, said one of the captains. The rebel column disintegrated and individual troopers fought with saber and pistol. Within 20 minutes, the combatants heard the sound of the Union artillery open up on Pickett's men. Stuart knew that whatever chance he had of joining the Confederate assault was gone, he withdrew his men to Crest Ridge. Custer's brigade lost 257 men at Gettysburg, the highest loss of any cavalry brigade. I challenged the annals of warfare to produce a more brilliant or successful charge of cavalry, Custer wrote in his report. For gallant and meritorious services, he was awarded a regular Army brevet promotion to major. Many historians write that the Battle of Gettysburg might well have turned out different if Jeb Stuart had been able to link up with the main force of the rebel army. This perhaps was Custer's finest moments in the war, if not his entire career. General Lee was perplexed and upset with Jeb Stuart in his inability to join the fight, which most likely could have turned the battle at Gettysburg and therefore possibly the war, the Civil War. Right. However, Lee took sole responsibility for for the loss at Gettysburg, but he expressed his true feelings in his official report, issuing a rather strong rebuke to Stuart. The army was much embarrassed by the absence of the cavalry. The first draft of the report more severely criticized Stuart, but he edited this out, explaining that if he were to do so officially, critic, be critical to Stuart, he would have been obliged to relieve him of command and to bring him up on charges so that he would not have the opportunity to defend himself. This he did not wish to do. So if you have ever visited Gettysburg, if you've never visited Gettysburg, you really, really should. The battlefield and the town, they're well worth spending time there. It's very well documented. It's, and it's if, a, you, if you can, there is, the reenactment is the 4th of July weekend every year. It's really cool. If you are ever able, I mean, you'll need to reserve your hotel room and everything or camping spot or whatever. Now. <laughs> yeah, far, far in advance. Um, but if you're able to go, we went to the reenactment one year. It's very, very cool. There is not only during the day, there are the battles, but there's all kinds of like living history things set up during the day. Um, in the evening of either the second or third, there is like a barn dance that's open to the public to come and join. It's, it's a really interesting It's experience. a big deal. Yeah, you should go. All right, now, General Custer participated in Sheridan's campaign in the Shenandoah Valley. Here, the controversial side of Custer comes through. The civilian population was specifically targeted in what is known as the burning. To be fair, this was not Custer's policy, but the overall war strategy of the Union Army of leave nothing. Apparently, Custer was able to take a little break from the war because on February 9th, 1864, he married Elizabeth Clift Bacon, whom he had first seen when he was 10 years old. This is a cute story. He had been socially introduced to her in November 1862 
went home in Monroe on leave. She was not initially impressed with him. And her father, Judge Daniel Bacon, disapproved of Custer as a match because he was the son of a blacksmith. It was not until well after Custer had been promoted to the rank of Brigadier General that he gained the approval of Judge Bacon, and he married Elizabeth 14 months after they formally met. But duty called, and Custer was back to the war. In 1864, with the Cavalry Corps of the Army of the Potomac reorganized under command of Major General Philip Sheridan, Custer, now commanding the 3rd Division, led his Wolverines to the Shenandoah Valley, where by the year's end they defeated the Army of Confederate Lieutenant General Jubal Early in the Valley Campaigns of 1864. During May and June, Sheridan and Custer took part in cavalry actions supporting the Overland Campaign, including the Battle of the Wilderness, after which Custer was given command of of a division, and the Battle of Yellow Tavern, where Jeb Stewart was mortally wounded. In the largest all-cavalry engagement of the war, the Battle of Trevilian Station, in which Sheridan sought to destroy the Virginia Central Railroad and the Confederates' western resupply route, Custer captured uh, Hampton's divisional train, but was then cut off and suffered heavy losses, including having his division trains overrun. Now, his division trains are his supply wagons. They're called trains. And his personal baggage captured by the enemy before being relieved. Can you imagine, like, if you were the guy that got Custer's baggage, knowing how he's very vain and, like, I bet you they had a ton of fun with that. Anyway, when Lieutenant General Early was ordered to move down the Shenandoah Valley and threaten Washington, D.C., Custer's division was again dispatched under Sheridan. In the Valley Campaigns of 1864, they pursued the Confederates at the Third Battle of Winchester and effectively destroyed Early's army during Sheridan's counterattack at Cedar Cedar Creek. Sheridan and Custer, having defeated Early, returned to the main Union army lines at the Siege of Petersburg, where they spent the winter. In April 1865, the Confederate lines finally broke, and Robert E. Lee began his retreat to Appomattox Courthouse, pursued by the Union cavalry. Now, a side note here, Appomattox Courthouse is not a building. Like, a lot of people, you hear that and you think courthouse, like a a courthouse. courthouse. It's Think of it, it's like the county seat in some states. Here in Ohio, yeah, here in Ohio, we have Washington Courthouse. So there's not very many of them left in the country, but that's what it is. It's not a courthouse. It's a a place. It's a city. Yeah. Yeah. Custer distinguished himself by his actions at Waynesboro, Dinwiddie Courthouse, and Five Forks. His division blocked Lee's retreat on its final day and received the first flag of truce from the Confederate forces. After a truce was arranged and Custer was escorted through the lines to meet Longstreet, who described Custer as having flaxen locks flowing over his shoulders, and Custer said... I doubt if he said it like that. I bet he did. In the name of General Sheridan, I demand the unconditional surrender of this army. Longstreet replied that he was not in command of the army, but if he was, he would not deal with messages from Sheridan. Custer responded it would be a pity to have more blood upon the field, to which Longstreet suggested the truce be respected, and then added, General Lee has gone to meet General Grant, and it is for them to determine the future of the armies. Custer was present at the surrender at Appomattox Courthouse, and the table upon which the surrender was signed was presented to him as a gift for his wife by Sheridan, who included a note to her praising Custer's gallantry. She treasured the gift of the historic table, which is now in the Smithsonian Institution, but I think, isn't it on lend to the museum at Appomattox Courthouse? I, I don't know. Because we were there, we visited the, the museum at Appomattox Courthouse, and I 
thought that the table was there. I think they may have lent it to them from the Smithsonian and like that's where it's displayed. I I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. But that's also another cool. Uh, there's so many like in Virginia the and Pennsylvania. Yeah. There are a lot of really cool uh, like on-site museums um, that do a lot of living history things that if you're a Civil War nerd, definitely check them out. On April 25th, after the war officially ended, Custer had his men search for, then illegally seize a large prize racehorse named Don Juan near Clarksville, Virginia. The horse was worth an estimated $10,000. That's several hundred thousand dollars in today's money. Jeez. Along with the horse's written pedigree. Custer rode Don Juan in the Grand Review Victory Parade in Washington, D.C. on May 23rd. Insult to injury. Don Juan created a spectacle when the scared thoroughbred bolted. The owner, Richard Gaines, wrote to General Grant, who then ordered Custer to return the horse to Gaines. But Custer didn't return Don Juan. Instead, he hid Don and entered him in a race the next year. Don Juan won the race, but then he suddenly died. There's karma for you. After the Civil War, Custer not the horse's fault. <laughs> no, it's not, but after the Civil War, Custer was given typical duties during the Reconstruction period. On June 3, 1865, at Sheridan's request, Major General Custer accepted a command of the 2nd Division of Cavalry, Military Division of the Southwest, to march from Alexandria, Louisiana to Hempstead, Texas as part of the Union Occupation Forces. Custer arrived at Alexandria on June 27th and began assembling his units, which took more than a month to gather and remount. On July 17th, he assumed command of the Cavalry Division of the Military Division of the Gulf, and accompanied by his wife, he led the division to Texas on an arduous 18-day march in August. I bet they were hot and miserable, and I bet Mrs. Custer fussed every inch of the way. It sounds like so much fun. On October 20th, oh, I dread riding with you that long because I, we would never hear the end oh, of it. No, you wouldn't. On October 27th, the division departed to Austin. On October 29th, Custer moved the division from Hempstead to Austin, arriving on November 4th. Major General Custer became Chief of Cavalry of the Department of Texas from November 13th to February 1st, 1866, succeeding Major General Wesley Merritt. During his entire period of command of the division, Custer encountered a considerable friction and near mutiny from the volunteer cavalry regiments who had campaigned along the Gulf Coast. They desired to be mustered out of federal service rather than continue campaigning. They resented imposition of discipline, particularly from an eastern theater general, and Custer nothing more was than a vain dandy. Yeah. A vain dandy. I like how they talked back then. Custer divi- Custer's division was mustered out beginning in November 1865, replaced by the regulars of the United States 6th Cavalry Regiment. Although their occupation of Austin had apparently been pleasant, many veterans harbored deep resentments against Custer, particularly in the 2nd Wisconsin Cavalry because of his attempts to maintain discipline. Upon mustering out, several members planned to ambush Custer, but he was warned the night before, and the attempts were thwarted. Now, that sounds a little bit more like uh, more than just normal resentment. I mean, they tried to kill him. Yeah, I mean, they sounded pretty salty. On February 1st, 1866, Major General Custer mustered out of the U.S. Volunteer Service and took an extended leave of absence and awaited orders until September 24th. He explored options in New York City where he considered careers in railroads and mining, 
and he was offered a position and $10,000 in gold as adjutant general of the army of Benito Juarez in Mexico, who was then in a struggle with the Mexican emperor Maximilian I, who was a satellite ruler of French emperor Napoleon III. Custer applied for a one-year leave of absence from the U.S. Army, which was endorsed by Grant and Secretary of War Stanton. Sheridan and Mrs. Custer disapproved, however, <laughs> and when his request for leave... I'm not riding to Mexico. You already <laughs> drug me right. out of here. Yeah. When his request for leave was opposed by U.S. Secretary of State William H. Seward, who was against having an American officer commanding foreign troops, Custer eventually decided to do what his wife wanted. Smart man. Following the death of his father-in-law in May 1866, Custer left New York and returned to Monroe, Michigan, where he considered running for Congress. He took part in public discussion over the treatment of the American South in the aftermath of the Civil War, advocating a policy of moderation. He was named head of the Soldiers and Sailors Union, regarded as a response to the hyperpartisan Grand Army of the Republic, also formed in 1866, it was led by act- activist John Alexander Logan. In September 1866, Custer accompanied President Andrew Johnson on a journey tr- by train known as the Swing Around the Circle to build up public support for Johnson's policies towards the South. Custer denied a charge by the newspapers that Johnson had promised him a colonel's commission and returned for his support. But Custer had written to Johnson some weeks before seeking such a commission, Custer and his wife stayed with the president during most of the trip. At one point, Custer was confronted by a small group of Ohio men who repeatedly jeered Johnson. Custer told the men, I was born two miles and a half from here, but I am ashamed of you. Hmm. On July 28, 1866, Custer was appointed lieutenant colonel of the newly created 7th Cavalry Regiment, which was headquartered at Fort Riley, Kansas. You live there. I was there. He served on frontier duty at Fort Riley from October 18th to March 26th and scouted in Kansas and Colorado until July 28, 1867. He took part in Major General Winfield Scott Hancock's expedition against the Cheyenne. And on June 26th, Lieutenant Lyman Kidder's party, made up of 10 troopers and one scout, were massacred while en route to Fort Wallace. Lieutenant Kidder was to deliver dispatches to Custer from General Sherman, but his party was attacked by Lakota Sioux and Cheyenne. Days later, Custer and a search party found the bodies of Kidder's patrol. Following the Hancock campaign, Custer was court-martialed for a second time. He was convicted on eight counts that included conduct to the prejudice of good order and military discipline and absence without leave from his command after he left part of his regiment on the Kansas frontier while he returned without orders to Fort Riley in order to see his wife Libby. Hmm. Custer was suspended from rank and command without pay for a year, but Sheridan reinstated him after 10 months on October 7th, 1868 to lead a bloody campaign against the Cheyenne. And that's where we're going to end the episode for this week. It's a little under an hour, but last time you guys got a little over an hour, so it all balances out in the end. And we're about halfway through right now. Yeah, and so we we covered the Civil War part, and now we're getting ready to get into the very controversial sort of is he a war criminal or is he a the, hero the Indian or campaign the li- Indian wars and the, yeah we'll get into the controversy and the discussion over Custer next week absolutely all right so Kim yes anything we need to um else we need to say um 
I don't think so, except to continuously apologize for never putting episodes out on time, but you're all probably used to that by now, and then it just means all that much more when we do put out an episode. It's like a little surprise. You know, I I really think that we're suffering some of the long-term effects of COVID because we are just physically tired and worn out, and it just... The motivation to get anything done is just... its Yeah, it's not it's, just you guys. We love the show. We love, yeah, love, love doing the show. Because when we get down here to do that, it's its what like invigorates me right yeah. now to get here and do this. But, but I don't it's know. actually I'm putting not, a show together. I'm not, I'm not even making excuses. I think this is a medical thing yeah, that we're No, we, it really is. Putting a show together, I don't think... Um, you know, until we actually had a podcast, I didn't realize how much work went into a podcast. To put together an hour show, you figure at least usually about two hours at least to record an hour show plus minimum i would say four hours of research oh no minimum minimum no it takes this show i put like two and a half days into yeah well that's what i'm saying like some of our like launch hair larry that didn't that wasn't a huge huge amount of research but a show like this like a two-parter yeah sometimes it takes a, a week like all week to put together a show and we love doing it. Like this is one of our favorite things in the world to do. But at the same time, if you're just wiped out, tired and fatigued, you just, you don't even feel like doing like, anything. We actually tried to record last night, but we were both just so tired. We yeah. couldn't, we couldn't. We, we were in bed physic- by 10. And we just physically couldn't come down here and do it. We were that tired. Yeah. We were in bed by 10. So, but so we're, we're not we're making really excuses. Trying. No, we're, we're not, not making we're, excuses. We're really, we really are trying. I promise. Telling you the facts. Yeah, hopefully it'll get better over the next, you know, All right. couple months. But so enough whining from us yeah, about yeah, yeah. how so, difficult this is, Kim. Any, I know. No. How, do, how do you get hold of us? You can find us on all the social medias: uh, Twitter, Facebook, um, Instagram. Uh, I know Facebook is an hour of your life. Twitter, I think, is an hour of your life. Instagram is an hour of your life. I'm pretty sure. Um, our email is a lost hour at gmail.com. So that's the only one that's different. Also, if you are interested in some of the genealogy exploits that I've been going through, um, I have a TikTok. Steve does not. It's at 937Kim. Um, you can follow me. And and I also have like, a, I do sort of a minute of your life every day. Um, it's a series each week. I have a different topic. This week we're talking, we're revisiting the good dogs that we did on an hour of your life, but breaking it up into one minute chunks. That was a long time ago. It was a long time ago. Yeah. So if you want to revisit any of that, you can revisit it on my TikTok page and in, in a minute of your life. So there's your self-promotion. There I am. I think we should start charging you commercial fees for this. What do you want to charge me? I don't know. Will you I figure it out and get back to me? I, I, I will do that. So <laughs> if there's nothing else, thanks for spending your time with us. Thanks for being patient and... Anything else? No. Okay. So, from our studio (laughs) in Sugar Creek Township. Thanks for spending an hour of your life with us. Sources for this week's episode include Wikipedia, History.com, the National Institute of Health, the National Park Services, the RAB Collection, and First Lieutenant Harry Jurgens, Class of 2018, United States Military Academy, not the GOAT.